welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us again on the Heroic Hearts Podcast. I'm Amy Chase. In this first episode of Season 1, Walter introduces us to Mark Twain's novel about Joan of Arc, the book we'll be reading together throughout the season. We also begin our exploration of the hero's journey motif in Joan's story by looking at the first stage of the hero's journey, known as the ordinary world. Walter shows us how this world in Twain's story is closely intertwined with an emerging extraordinary world. Whether you've read the opening chapters or not, we hope you will enjoy the discussion. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, Walter. We're, Hi, Amy. We're back with uh, another episode of Heroic Hearts. All right. Polished and ready. All right. Well, Walter, uh, why don't we start out with uh, an enchanting moment this week? What has happened in your week that uh, delighted you or gave you pause? Well, I had an enchanting moment for sure. I probably had many, but just didn't recognize them. But we there was a there was a particular moment when um, uh, Josie and I were driving home. We went to the Shrine of Saint Philomena in uh, Briggsville, and it was uh, we love going up there. It's a beautiful shrine. There's so many shrines up in Wisconsin, but. Yeah, keep in mind it was 12 degrees, cold, winter, Wisconsin, snow. So all the things that you typically think of, oh, no, terrible. But we were driving down the highway, and I looked around, and I I saw the the most beautiful, the fields. Mm. There were just fields and forest. And the thing that struck me was these huge fields, open fields, that were untouched because, you know, people aren't just walking around like they do everywhere. There's not so there was this huge expanse of just forest and fields covered in snow that was untouched. And it was, it really was sort of just looked magical. Now behind the scenes, there were probably people in homes that were arguing with each other and doing, you know, all the typical <laughs> stuff. There was, there was real life that was going on as, as we were there. But when I looked out, uh, I just saw this most beautiful enchanting moment. What I realized was that beneath, beneath the ordinary that we just sort of accept that we just, there's just sort of this mundane life that we do all the time that that's out there. It's just sitting there waiting yes. for us to observe it. it, it it's not hiding. It's mm. just sitting there. And all we have to do is, is observe. And it gave me a great sense of peace and serenity. Um, difficult to put in words, but just seeing beautiful fields and forests covered in snow, untouched, and realizing that amidst the mundane, that world is out there. And, yeah. and you could you could almost see the you know, the fairies moving amongst the trees and things like that. So that was my enchanting. Wow, that's lovely. 
And how about you? What was your enchanting moment? For well, nothing so grand as that. And also, uh, snow-covered fields are not in the area where <laughs> <laughs> where I come from. In fact, uh, here in California, we've very recently been having some uh, heat waves. And uh, so very different. But this um, one morning this week, I, I usually get up very early. And uh, I just I had the idea to go out on my balcony just as just before the sun was rising. In fact, all you could see was a glimmer of light on the horizon. But the only thing that was in the sky was the morning star and oh. it was so bright and lovely and just um just that one beautiful shining star to remind us of god's goodness and give me hope for the day ahead so that wow. it, yeah it was just a, a nice quiet little moment it, yeah and isn't it amazing when you sort of get up before everyone else is up and it's just it's my favorite time of day. <laughs> Even though it's hard to get up early, I love to be the first one awake. Well, but you know, it's home. just kind of like the snow cap thing. You know that 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 world of enchantment is out there. It's 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 within our grasp. We just yeah. sort of lose track of it, right? Once yeah. once we start it, just getting in the mundane world. We That's just need beautiful. we just need eyes to see. That's exactly right. Well, well, great. Well, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today uh, about this uh, first part of um, Joan of Arc, uh, Joan of Arc's story. But oh, yeah. why don't you get us started with our with our prayer? Okay. Well, this is our uh, special, and we want to share it with everybody yeah. because we hope that it will help you, uh, kind of draw you into. Um, you know, this story with us. And so this is a beautiful uh, prayer that we've uh, made our own um, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. Amen. Amen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so right. much. Well, so today we're going to be diving into the story of St. Joan of Arc, and we're taking a kind of a unique approach, I think. We've we're going to be discussing elements of the hero's journey and how it applies to the life of Joan of Arc. But not only that, we've, we've decided that uh, we're going to use the, the novel written by Mark Twain, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, and we're going to use that as our guide through her life. And so I'm really excited yeah. to get started on this. So with the, with the hero's journey... The first stage of this journey is called Ordinary World. And this is the, the point in the story where we're introduced to the main character who is living in what, um, you know, what is, is usually, a, it can be a, a comfortable life, but oftentimes it's rather boring. Or it could be a life where um, something is just not quite right. And the hero may or may not be really aware of it, but um, but there is something um, missing. It's the it's the world that 
is um, comprised of just the immediate surroundings, just that that world of material pressing concerns that we have to deal with. And I think we talked about it in our um, our podcast introduction, and we called it the dome of oppression. Right. Right. Yeah. So this dome of oppression is our it's our ordinary world. It's um, when you're driving down the interstate and you have to pay attention to the car behind you and the car in front of you is going too slowly and you need to pass. And it's all that stuff. That, and you're and you're late for work. And you're and... late. You're late for work, <laughs> and you're getting tired. And you're kind of hungry, and you forget. And you forget to look at the beautiful fields covered in snow, and uh, the forest. Exactly. So, if we can just sum it up, the ordinary world is that place in our lives which is cut off from enchantment. Yeah, it's it's a place where. We're caught, as I say, the the mundane or the the the, and, and there's nothing wrong with we all live and express ourselves in 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 an ordinary world, but yeah. we um, we oftentimes don't reflect. We don't um, we sort of just accept the world as it as 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 it is, as it and appears, yeah, as it appears, and 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 we just we don't really step back to reflect and think. And so, yes, that's the challenge I think we all have. So we're going to be looking at Joan's Ordinary World as it opens in Mark Twain's book. But Walter, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of, of, um, of the story that, that Mark Twain has written for us and, and a little yeah. bit about why he did so? Well, uh, yeah, it's a, first of all, you know, Mark Twain's book is on Joan of Arc is a remarkable book. Um, he himself claimed it was his best book. So, and it's probably one that many people don't know that he wrote. And so it says a lot that he himself said that it was, it was his best, uh, his best book. And there, there's a reason that we've chosen his book. And uh, I mean, there are so many books written on Joan of Arc and, you know, so the listener may say, but Aren't there like notable, like historical uh, books? Yes, there are. I, mean, I always tell people, go read Regine Pernout. You'll get some of the best history uh, ever written on Joan of Arc. There certainly, there certainly are, but there's a reason that we've, we've chosen. And that's because um, Mark Twain uh, tells a very, a very solid history as people recognize of Joan of Arc, but he tells it in a very enchanting uh, manner. It's very much written in, in the form of, of, of story. So he, he wrote it and he gave us the story of Joan of Arc as probably only Mark Twain could. Um, that is historically accurate, which is important for people to know, but written in the form of a story. And isn't it, sometimes easier to absorb and, and hear and, and listen when you hear something in a story form. Isn't that how, Absolutely. you know, many, yeah. many, many came. I mean, when people listen to Jesus, they listen to, to, to stories. So I think it's important for the audience to know that we, we've been very intentionally picked this book. It's, it's often the, the book that I, usually when people say, what, what should it, what's the first book I should read on Joan of Arc? I say Mark, Mark Twain. And they're usually expecting some, intensely PhD historical thing. And I'm like, no, because what you'll do is you'll get the true story of Joan of Arc, but you're going to hear more. You're going to hear more about who Joan of Arc was. And, 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 you know, I think part of it, Amy is, is, you know, Mark Twain, I think wanted to tell us more than, 
more than just the history of Joan of Arc, more than just her exploits. I think he wanted to tell us about who she was Mm -hmm. and more about her as a person uh, as he perceived her. And then as a final note, I'd say it's important to realize that he spent many years working on this. Um, his, uh, there's a, there's a saying somewhere and I, I, I don't know that I, I can access it, but there was a saying somewhere where he said that, uh, all of his other books, uh, deserve no research and got none. And, and that was, but, but that wasn't true with Joan of Arc. He spent 12 years, uh, he traveled to France, he traveled to England and he spent 12 years putting it together. And then that's an incredible amount of time. And didn't he go to the archives? I mean, he used the yeah. actual source documents that we have from the trials yeah, and everything. Yeah, as far yeah. as I understand, he he really did a solid solid research because, it, and I think it shows you how seriously he he took it. So when one reads the story, and you and and of course there there's a little bit of Twain fictionalism that that is mixed in there's some characters he's going to add and some some things but we've got to bear in mind that just like um just like in many stories right so so the idea being that a story can be true even if it never happened we all know that that feeling and so the Joan of Arc story happened and he wrote it reflecting what happened but sometimes you need to maybe say something in a way that tells um, that tells the truth of the story in a way that is is difficult. Um, and so sometimes you you um, you know there are some fictional aspects, but they're added to convey truths about the story mm-hmm. and truths about who Joan of Arc was. And I think the fact that it's a story makes it more accessible for for any reader, for our listeners, to enter into yeah. into it, into the well, story yeah, too. And, and, yeah, and then he, I know he he uh, in, in one of the books, and I'm sure sure which uh, uh, version. I think the original one I had, but somewhere in the introduction, I think it said, but it pointed out to a story where he he would give his stories to his wife. And I know he said he he wrote the um, he wrote the story, and then he gave it to his wife, who was polite. He always knew when she didn't really like what he wrote. <laughs> he would just she would hand it back and say, "Well, that's that's very nice," you know. And he would always go, oh, "Okay, that doesn't." <laughs> that's, that's nice, dear. <laughs> yeah, that's nice, dear. That's nice. So he wrote, I think, several versions, and he got the same response uh, from his wife, and that was just you know that's that's yeah that's that's real nice. So he finally, you know, rethought and he brought it to her in the format, you know, in the, in the format that he has it now. And he said, she read it, she brought it to him and she smiled and she said, that's, you know, this is, this is it. So point being is this was a very seriously, a very serious undertaking mm-hmm. for Mark Twain. It was, it was very serious and it was, um, it was, um, you know, put together with a lot of thought. So, and and despite being serious, though, the story itself is very inviting. Oh yeah, and um, and well, you you mentioned, you know, we talked about just in the in the opening, sort of the ordinary world and the world of um, of enchantment, and you know that 
that you have, you know, with, with the story of Joan of Arc is you have this very uh, ordinary type of, um, of environment and um, a very ordinary village. And you have, um, you know, a very extraordinary person. Well, let's, let's turn to the story then. So um, we, for this episode, we've read up to the third chapter to include the front matter and the, and the preface. So let's, uh, what does Mark Twain have to say to us in, in that um, front matter? Well, what, um, so the, 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 um, I think the front, the front part of the book brings uh, forward some, uh, I, I think presents the challenge that you're going to have as you go, as you go through the book. Um, the, the front matter basically lets you know that you're about to hear the story of someone who is so remarkable that they are almost beyond comprehension. Now that that's a, that's, you know, so the, the, the front matter is basically saying, look, this is not an, this is not, this, this is a story you need to pay attention to. And this is a person that the world needs to pay attention to. This is not, this is someone who stands out among um, humanity. Yeah. And the, uh, so that the challenge that we're going to have is how does, how does someone move from an ordinary? So, so what's ordinary about Joan of Arc? Well, you know what? A lot of things are very ordinary about Joan of Arc. And that's what you're going to see when you, when you get into the story is that there's this, this sort of, this very ordinary environment. There's, there's a, a small village in France during a time of war. And, um, there's, there's, there's a lot that we can relate to from an ordinary standpoint. And that Joan was a very normal, very good, mm-hmm. but a very normal young girl. She tended sheep. She lived in a, you know, home with a dirt floor with her uh, with her parents, and uh, and her and she and her, and her family, and she had friends, and she did all these things, and and so um, there's there she's in this very ordinary environment. You could, because the, the listener might say, well, what, um, that's fantastic. And that inspires me. And I want to know more, but how I can't possibly relate to that. But what we'll find is you actually, you know, you, you, you can relate to that, that Joan came out of a very ordinary environment. She was, um, called to a very extraordinary, um, mission. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a lesson in that for us. So maybe not all of us are going to be called to save our country and lift the corpse of our country up and things <laughs> like that, but we are all going to be called or have been called to something higher. And we can learn a lot about how to, 
how to move in our ordinary life mm-hmm. um, and respond to that. And I hate to say move move beyond the ordinary because, you know, and, and particularly when you look at, at uh, Catholicism and, and the spirituality of Catholicism, it's always very grounded in the ordinary, every, you know, every day. Yeah. So when you when you talk about people like St. Therese of Lisieux and, and, and the great, you know, some of these great saints, and they'll always remind us that, you know, God's found in the ordinary and that we live out our vocation by, um, you know, living out, you know, our love of God and the everyday ordinary affairs. So, so I always, uh, you know, I hesitate to say, you know, moving out because we, we, we live, but as we move about in the ordinary, and I think it's exactly, yes. we're talking about that spirituality as someone like St. Therese moved using her as an example, moved about her ordinary, very ordinary. So just take her as an example, if the listeners are familiar with St. Therese of Lisieux, but very ordinary, so ordinary that people didn't even know what they were going to write about her when she died. Um, And yet she had this very extraordinary spirituality. So it's really as we move through the ordinary, Mm -hmm. uh, how we respond to that call, how we respond to that, that, that higher call. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you, you're still driving down the interstate in the ordinary world. The question is, how do you respond to the beautiful fields of mm-hmm. untouched snow and forest mm-hmm. that are out there? If that makes any sense. Yes, it does. So the story then begins not with Joan of Arc, but with this narrator named the Sir de Comte. <laughs> Yeah. I think we're going to, we're dear listeners. We're probably going to botch some of these French names, but oh yeah, the, tell yeah. us, tell us about the Sir de Comte. The Sir de Comte. It's always a question. Is the Sir de Comte or Sir de Comte? I guess it all, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so, so, um, so Mark Twain, uh, one of the genius, uh, genius aspects of the book, I think is, you know, when he taught, so, so how do you write this as a story? As we said, how do you do a story? Well, one of the things that he he did was to create this character in which he could speak as a third person who's living uh, with Joan and who grows up with Joan and travels with her and, um, and, and goes on her exploits uh, with her. And so you know, he creates this, this person who is going to speak as someone who's their contemporary in the time and, and is, 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 is living. Now, of course it's, it's Mark Twain. And so Mark Twain is going to be the, you know, the, the character, but this, but he'll be in the form of the sort of, sort of comp. So make for a very interesting, story who was the childhood friend of of saint joan of arc but then also will serve as the story progresses will serve as her as her aide i guess yes and so he's he's going to serve as as the um um he's going he'll he'll be with her when she goes into war and so he's really serving as as an eyewitness Mm -hmm. and when the when the book opens uh, what I love about it, when the book opens, he's telling the story as an 82-year-old man. So, so I, I, I imagine the story like this, that you're sitting around 
the fireplace with grandpa or with great grandpa. And you're sitting around the fireplace, maybe enjoying a glass of wine or something like that. And here comes, you know, grandpa, and he's going to tell us the story. And I, I, I can almost imagine, you know, that you're sitting there as kids and you're going, because now remember, as he's telling the story at 82 years of age, the people listening were in the same time frame as Joan. They would have known of her exploits. They would have heard all about it. So you can imagine that the kids, by this time, the kids would have probably been learning something in school about her or something. You can imagine that people sitting around are going, you know, Grandpa, you, you knew Joan of Arc? Wow. Tell us about, you know, you can imagine this kind of environment. So he establishes this environment up front where, um, you know, the old man is reflecting back. And if if I can just read from that, even before uh, chapter one, it starts out with this message from the Sir Louis de Comte to his great, great grand nephews and nieces. This is the year 1492. I am 82 years of age. The things I am going to tell you are things which I saw myself as a child and as a youth. And so we're immediately launched into his, the memory of his childhood. It, and it, 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 exactly. And, and so, uh, again, you can, you can pick up um, excellent books of history on, on Joan of Arc, but none, none will draw you in. Uh, the way that that Mark Twain has, and that that goes back to why we've chosen, you know, this book is because this is, it's um, it's one of you know probably a number, but it's it's a it's one that uh, is quite popular with people for this very reason that people uh, uh, yeah. like hearing about her in this way. So that's that's who's going to kind of lead us through. And, and the other thing, too, about having the sewer to come is, is he knows he knows the environment, he knows the landscape, and he knows the people. So he can speak as someone who is familiar. Uh, so we're getting an eyewitness account from mm-hmm. someone who is familiar with the people, the townsfolk, the landscape. He, and you'll find right. as you read through that he's familiar with the the lore, mm-hmm. you know, he's familiar with the traditions and the lore. And so he'll bring you into, to all of that. So it, it truly is. a. But he, he also um, bridges for us. So he, we find out in, in the early part of the story that he does come from nobility, but that his family is killed uh, when he's at a very young age because of the wars and the violence um, and the intrigue that has been going on. And so they are um, political exiles and, and eventually are killed in a raid. And he's the lone survivor and, and goes to the village of Domremy, where Joan of Arc's family lives. Um, and so he's taken into the tutelage of the local priest and he learns to read and write. Um, and he's the the only one of the, the village children that that has that skill. And it turns out to be important later on. Um, so, yeah, so he's, yeah. he's, he's someone that has a, a, a history, 
So, so he's bridging two worlds between sort of that political world and the world of nobility and aristocracy and then this village life. Yeah, and, and that sort of continues, uh, you know, through through the book that, um, you know, he sort of, um, we never escape the the realness of the world with mm-hmm. uh, with the story. Uh, and I think it's important, you know, I think listeners will appreciate that. I know I certainly did when I first read through the book is it doesn't sort of take off on some um, enchanting, you know, when well, I say enchanting, but it doesn't sort of take off on a um, world of fantasy where mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, what, what, what we're constantly kept aware that this is the real world and that this, despite the incredible things we're going to hear that all around there's war, there's burning villages, there's plague, plagues, there's yeah. injustice. As you'll yes. see, as we go through the story, there's grave injustice. Um, and, and so, yes, in that sense, uh, the character of the sewer is um, it, it is well done and well placed and extremely helpful in understanding the story. Yeah. So then, in chapter two, we really settle down into the village of Domremy and learn about Joan and her playmates, the other children. And there's a particular, so the title of this chapter is The Fairy Tree of Domremy. And I, I really loved some of the insights that you had about this chapter. Would you share with, with us, um, with our listeners, kind of the thematic, um, the, the thematic story that you see emerging in this yeah, chapter? I, I, you know, I think that chapter, uh, chapter two is... Um, uh, it's really one of my favorites because I think it, to me, it establishes the tone. And I, I think, you know, the, these chapters have themes that are sort of established, particularly in the beginning, I think for a reason, um, because Joan's story eventually takes on a a linearity of its own, meaning that there's this happens and then later this happens and later this happens. But there, there is sort of a non-linearity uh, that's established, I think, in the first few chapters. And, and chapter two is really a big, big piece of that. Because what, what he, he, he spends a lot of time, to, it, it's about the fairy tree. Now, for the listener who may not be familiar, and we don't want to give away, uh, you know, any spoilers, but down, down the road, the fairy tree becomes, in, in real life, in Joan's real story, the fairy tree becomes a big deal later on in her in her life when people begin to question her because what they want to do is to see um, if there were superstitions around the fairy's tree and if Joan got caught up in that. Because if she got caught up in that, that would mean that she really wasn't a saintly person. So we don't want to give too much of that away, but it's a big piece. So knowing that it's a big piece of the story you know, Mark Twain or the Sieur de Conte um, establishes right off the bat and brings his head on into 
the fairies. You know, what, what does he do with the fairies tree? He, he is what he establishes is two worlds that, that we're going to constantly be engaged in. Uh, one, you know, the ordinary world that we just, you know, uh, per, perceive. Um, and then there's, there's sort of this other world, this world of enchantment and that they exist with each other, which I think is really important. So he, he, he doesn't, this is what I mean by nonlinear. He doesn't really establish this sort of, um, oh, let me talk about an ordinary world. Oh, now let me switch. And now I'm going to move into a world of, of extraordinary. What he really establishes is, is that, you know, we live in a world where there, there are fairy trees. And that's what's a fair, what was the fairy tree? The fairy tree was a real tree. So it was, and this, this isn't, this isn't a Twain fictional. It's a real, it was a real, it was a real tree. It's where the kids went to play. And the ancient lore had established a very enchanting story about the tree and that there were, the fairies would come and dance with the tree and then the children would put uh, laurel wreaths up uh, for the fairies. And it was this kind of thing we all get engaged in when we're children, right? These, mm-hmm. these fantasy stories of, uh, and, and then, but, and, but then establishes the sort of the normalcy of the environment uh, around it. So what we, what we see in the fairy tree is this, um, this very ordinary village with ordinary kids playing around a tree, but with a very extraordinary um, aura about it. And uh, I, I really, I love the fact he, then he talks about the forest that's on the edge. And he says, you know, the, that they're, um, they're dragons in the forest. Now, what I, what I really like is he said, well, but I, I never saw it though. <laughs> <laughs> says, well, I, I never saw it, but, but, but they're there. But, but people who know about these things. Yeah. But know, people, who, yeah people know about these things. Yeah. Yeah. It's there, 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 there. But see, I th- I think that's brilliantly worded because I think what he's, what he's really trying to point out, or at least the perception I always got from that was, I'm not going to tell you that I saw something magical. I'm just going to tell you, I think that, that the magical, you know, exists, that there's a world of the extraordinary. And, and I think that he's establishing these two worlds because I think in Mark Twain's mind, it's going to be hard to explain Joan of Arc Mm -hmm. if we don't establish an ordinary and an extraordinary. And so I, I think. And the um, fact that those two can coexist. The, the, the two can coexist. I think there's a, you know, or a phrase I used, I think, um, that we spoke about before, you know, being, you know, we live, we tend sheep on the edge. We tend sheep in fields on the edge of a forest filled with dragons. Yes. So we tend sheep as ordinary people and the forest next to us uh, has, has uh, magical dragons. And that's just meant to convey that we're always... Um, maybe it's driving down the highway and just noticing fields of untouched snow and forest that those, those, those enchanting worlds are just, they're sitting there. We're always right on the edge of them. And, and also the, they're worlds that are kind of dangerous. There's risk. Oh yeah. As you enter the forest. Well, well, exactly. So, so if I were to, um, 
if I were to go out into those fields that I that I looked at, referring back to my enchanting moment, well, there, well, there are even bears out there, and right. there are wolves, and there are animals, and 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 you could you could get caught, and you could hurt yourself, and you could freeze to death. There's all there's all kinds of yes, there's there's risk and danger, but it, but amidst it, there's this gestalt uh, image of of, of, of a, you know, peace and serenity. So, yeah, I think, but I think that's what he's doing. And so in chat, in chapter two, the, the thing that, that got me, Amy, when I, when I, and even when I re- reread it, it always struck me. Why are we spending so long? Why is he spending so long on the fairy tree? Mm-hmm. It's a relatively long chapter and, and he doesn't like give up on it. <laughs> It's like just when you think he's getting ready to move on, he goes into another story, uh, you know, about the fairy tree. And you're going, where, where, where are we going with this? And then you finally kind of see that he's really he's really taking um, what would prove to be an important moment in Joan of Arc's later life. And he's using it to establish, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the two worlds the ordinary and the extraordinary world. And I think he does it very brilliantly and very, um, you know. And, and and I think he's inviting us as readers to suspend our skepticism because that's, if we, if we're not able to do that, yep. we will miss the whole point of Joan's story later on. Well, th- th- I mean, that's exactly right. It's, it's always, it, it's always, this is what they say. Some people have heard. Some <laughs> people say they saw. I don't think he—he he never says he saw it. He's just—he's—he's he's just conveying. So there's there's a sense of reality, meaning I didn't see it. I didn't see the dragons. Um, but the sense of enchantment. Oh, but, but they're of, there. of being op- open to the possibility. Open to the possibility that they're they're there, and so. Yes, I to, uh, I think that's a really pivotal um, and and foundational chapter uh, yeah. in in the book. And and then we move into chapter three, which begins to show us Joan's relationship with her with her country of France. And in this chapter, we have this very um, unusual encounter with with a vagabond and we see, we, we have a couple of characters that are introduced, uh, the mayor and the vagabond. Tell us about them. Yeah. Well, again, I, I, I think these are all well-placed, meaningfully, meaningfully placed chapters in establishing the story of Joan. Before we get to the linear aspect of her through time, we have to establish the environment we're in so that the third chapter, I think, is an, is is, is an, a marvelous follow up to the enchantment of the second chapter of of the of the fairies tree. Because what happens after the enchantment of the fairies tree is we now go in. It's winter time, and we're all in Joan of Arc's home with her parents. And and what's more ordinary in a small village, and you know, a small village in the current time, much less the medieval time, people are gathered around, right? So the, the friends and the neighbors are gathered around. 
Um, they don't have televisions and things. So they sit around, they talk, they sit by the fireplace, they share a meal. So, so the, the, the um, Joan of Arc's home is filled with friends and neighbors and they're having dinner and they're sitting by the fireplace. And um, there's a knock on the door and in walks, you know, like a vagabond. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's, worn and weary and he just kind of looks like a bum right there's a snowstorm outside he's looking for shelter yeah he's looking for shelter and he's been familiar with the wars he's 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 been beaten down by the wars and things like that so he's just kind of this bum that's kind of looking for look, a <laughs> looking for a handout well joan of arc's father Jacques dark he's not too happy about that and um now, what we see is Joan's, Joan's uh, charity is she immediately feels empathy and charity for the person and wants to give uh, her food to, you know, to the, va- to the vagabond. Now, is this a, did it happen just like this? Uh, probably not. Is it a true story? It is a true story. And, that, and if you read the rehabilitation, if you read the witnesses of her trial of rehabilitation that happened 25 years after her death, and they bring in, and they, these are real historical notarized records, they bring in people who knew Joan of Arc when she was a child. They talk about her charity to the poor the way she would go and visit the sick, the way she would always look to help those who were in need. So is this a true story he's telling? It sure is a true story. Did it happen? Maybe not just like this, but it's a true story, just like we were talking about. So the vagabond, she wants to hand it. Now, her father isn't too happy about that, right? Her father acts like a lot of us, which is, let's go to the ordinary world of just, hey, I'm a hardworking man. The, the money doesn't grow on trees. And, um, and I have no idea what your intentions are. You I, know, yeah, I got to protect my family. I don't trust anybody as far as I can throw them. I have no reason to trust you. And, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, so I'm not cooperating here. And that's a very typical attitude that, and to some people might even be a very understandable attitude uh, when you just sort of come across uh, a bum like that. Well, Joan persists in, in, in her charity. Well, what happens is, so Twain first introduces, remember in the fairies tree, we had the ordinary and the extraordinary world would mix together. Well, he, he, <laughs> he does the same thing here, but he does it in a very different context where we see the ordinary and the extraordinary. So the ordinary part, the mayor who's there stands up and he regales the crowd with this marvelous story. Um, Don't go into all the details, but he tells this marvelous story. You have to read it. Only Twain can tell it. And he makes a justification for why we should be charitable to this vagabond. And the people are weeping and crying and they're just carried away with this magnanimous, um, explanation purely in the ordinary just a the mayor giving this explanation of why we should be charitable and and so 
But, um, but one one gets the sense from the mayor's speech, though, that it was really more. He was really using an opportunity to show off his rhetorical oh, skills. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, oh, yeah. It was um, uh, his. It was his opportunity to um, uh, show off, and and he, he loved to hear himself speak. Right. Mm-hmm. He loved to hear himself, and the people are weeping, and they're. And they're what a marvelous speaker he is. Listen to him. Can you deny the? Can you deny the story that he's telling? And so he convinces them, and 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 Joan of Arc's father gives in, and he says, "Okay, all right, you've made your point. So Joan, go ahead and give him your food." Well, she's already given it to him because <laughs> she's she's that. she's not she's she's not waiting around for it. Well, that's a beautiful story, and that's you know how ordinary is that? You know, you've got the people gather in the fireplace and, and, and who, what time around a fireplace, isn't it? It isn't good when, unless you have that one person who loves to tell the stories and, and regale you with, with tales, even if they just like to hear themselves talk, how ordinary is that? And the topic is ordinary, but now what happens is the, um, the, uh, the vagabond now starts to, um, the vagabond starts to tell his story and his story is um, his story is quite remarkable. And it has to do with um, uh, his ventures and, and his uh, ventures through the wars. And he starts talking about France. And what we find is that the vagabond is, um, has this remarkable almost mystical understanding of France and of what France really is in that, in in that enchanting world that you don't see in that world in the forest where you don't see the, the, the fairies that never saw them, but, but they're, you know, but they're there kind of world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he 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 then regales the crowd with an amazing story that that, that supersedes and, and far exceeds the mayor's story, and 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 Joan is so drawn into it, as is the crowd. And the crowd again is just overwhelmed with what he's saying, and as he conveys this almost mystical sense of what France is, Joan is drawn in and. And she, among all the people, are hugging the vagabond now. But Joan is right in the front, head on his breast, hugging him with tears as he finishes his story about um, about France. And 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 what I see is that you know, whereas Twain introduced the two worlds to us in chapter two. And he carried it forward in chapter three with sort of the mayor's story around the fireplace in the ordinary world. And then the vagabond's extraordinary um, mm-hmm. story that I almost see the vagabond as sort of a uh, allegory for France. And, um, and I think that's supported by the text because the last thing that the vagabond does is he sings to them the great song of Roland, and Roland being the the epic legend of um, 
of you know the times of Charlemagne. So so really, right? He's uh, really drawing on yeah. the 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 um, the lore, the the, yes. the lore, um, and the identity, the the French yes. identity, the the lore and the identity of France. And I think in a certain way, like I said, I, I think he's an allegory for France. And I think what it establishes is the image of Joan hugging the uh, vagabond, head on chest, tears streaming down her face. To me, uh, Mark Twain has established that almost, that extraordinary, almost mystical relationship Joan will have with France. Yeah. That there's this bonding of her and France uh, together. And I think it's very interesting that he brings France, essentially France comes into the, the front door of the, Mm. of, of Joan of Arc's home. France walks in, in in a certain sense Mm -hmm. and engages and draws her you know, draws her to uh, him. And and it's interesting. And how does he come in? He's a, he's a vagabond. So he's been war, he's been beaten down in the wars. He's tired. He's dirty. He's hungry. He's been beaten down. He's, he's, he's war weary. Well, where was France at the time that this happened with Joan? Same thing. Effectively, you could picture France very much uh, like the vagabond, tired, war weary. I mean, there's several there's several generations into the Hundred Years War. You know, oh, yeah. they've been dealing with this. Oh yeah. Well, the, they're, in fact, they're getting. Um, well, they're they're within probably twenty years or so of the end of the of the Hundred Years War. Yeah. Or if there's ever, it's hard to demarcate. <laughs> it, it's, it's, and and we didn't really even get to talk about the the historical context of the story, so we may have to do that next week. Um, yeah. So that's so. But you. But to 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 your points, these first few chapters that we sort of have for this week are those. Um, I think importantly establish. Again, what I what I really think are the nonlinear aspects. I, I know I keep referring to nonlinear, simply meaning that there there's a, a foundational story that's going to encompass the whole of the story. And as we go forward into time and space, where A happens and then B happens and then C happens, because there's a necessary there's a necessary linear historical part of the story that we're going to get into. I think what's happening in these first few chapters is Twain is establishing the the world, the multidimensional world yeah. that we're going to be in yeah. when when we're with Joan. And um and that's a great place for us to pause the telling of the story and invite our listeners to join us in this idea of being in the story. And how, how have we proposed to do that, Walter? Well, what we, what we propose and and we hope that people will, will, will do is, is, you know, walk with us through this story, experience, be part of the story. 
live the story with with us uh, as as we go through. And um, and one of the one of the the I guess key derivative um, you know exercises that we would ask people to do or we would invite advise, invite people to do is to reflect. So there's this this what we what we hope you'll do is we hope you'll participate. We hope more than just listen. We want we'd like you to invite you to participate with us in the story. Live the story with us as we go through, but importantly reflect upon the story. Um, and so we've, and we've got some, we've, yeah. we've got, what we'll do is each session will give you some ideas of what that reflection might look like, you know, give you maybe some starters as to what that reflection might look like. So we've prepared a couple of questions. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've prepared a couple of questions uh, to close out with, and we will put these in our show notes. So no need to write them down. They will be there for you if you want to journal or just think about them or discuss it with a friend. Um, but we, we really hope that um, that using using these questions, we can engage more deeply with the story. So what are your questions, Walter? Well, I've got two questions. Um, one I would ask um, our listeners is when did you first sense a memorable enchanting moment? And can you describe that experience? So when did you first mm. sense a memorable enchanting moment? And can you describe it? The second question would be, can you describe an experience where you perceived a calling to something greater, to a higher purpose? What happened mm. when, you, when you felt that? So those are the two questions I would invite the <laughs> the uh, listeners to engage in. And those those are great questions. I've got a couple ideas for myself of how I would answer that. And maybe we will take some time in the next show to to share a few of our thoughts there. Um, as well as invite our listeners to share their own uh, their own thoughts in our and, comments. And so, for what, the are your, yeah. what are your questions? <laughs> okay, so okay. my questions. So I've thrown mine out. <laughs> what, are, what are yours? Very good. So, uh, like you, I have two questions. My first question is: What aspects of Joan's 15th century ordinary world are similar to our own, and what aspects are different? And my second question is. Have you ever encountered a vagabond-like character who turned out to be so much more than his or her appearance? Describe this encounter. And what was it that opened up your sight to, you know, what was beyond the appearance? Boy. So awesome questions. Some great um some great homework. And I think um uh, again there's really two components to this that that I think we we've, we've talked about that are really important is more than just listening um you know live live the story with us and and secondly 
reflect upon your experience of living the story with us. Yes. And, and that um, will be uh, potentially a, 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 a key that unlocks the door to enchantment for you and, and for us as well. Well, we are, we're off and running, Walter. This is, right. this has been fun. Well, this is, this is, uh, is it the second greatest story ever told? <laughs> it's one of the great. It is, it is certainly yeah. one of them. And we're not talking about, uh, <laughs> uh, we're not talking about Mark Twain's, we're talking about the life of Joan of Arc being, uh, this is truly uh, among the most astonishing stories um, in, uh, in, in the world, in history, yeah, in history. And we truly believe that it can help every single one of us as we sort of struggle through the ordinary, uh, world with that dome of oppression hanging over us, you know, that this can be, she can, her life can be a remarkable, um, help to us in breaking through that can be a light um okay so next week we're going to read chapters four through six in book one um oh and we should we should mention the story is broken down into three books and the books have each have chapters so Mm -hmm. we're in book one and we'll read chapters four to six next week excellent well we've got some homework to do then and uh, we'll, we'll get on it all right thank you amy Oh, by the way, Amy, we can't let we we can't <laughs> let you go unless you do your closing poem. So Amy's always got Wonderful. a closing poem for us. So and that's because go. that's because I think poetry is a great way um, to enter into those worlds of enchantment. So it's it's a way of telling <laughs> it's a way, a way of telling things that are true but maybe never happened. <laughs> that's right. Well. Uh, it's it's been great, Walter. I look forward to uh, to our next show and our our next discussion about our our favorite hero, Joan. So excellent. Thank All you. Right. We'll talk Take to care. you then. Thanks, Amy. Bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with Saint Joan and Saint Therese please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. 
And though the last lights off the black west went, Oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods With warm breast and with ah bright wings. <laughs>